This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, are able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we open God's word this morning, let's uh, take a few minutes to go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there's such complexity as well as simplicity in your word. We can look at your word and understand truth in a simple sense. But then as we reflect upon it and as we go through the same material again and again, we see layers, we see correlations, we see how there are uh, intertextual uh, repetitions and dependency. And as we compare Scripture to Scripture, we come to understand uh, what your plan and purposes are, and we see it unfold before us. Now, fathers, we continue this study on the ascension and session of our Lord. Help us to see how these various Old Testament passages all relate to one another and give us uh, enlightenment on what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, that we may come to a greater understanding of the role of the church in this dispensation and for each one of us as church-age believers. For the focal point here is really upon taking these things and seeing in a fresh way our roles and responsibilities as believer priests in the church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Now, we won't get there for a little while because I'm going to review a few things and continue to try to put these things together for us so that you have an idea what the picture is as we put the different parts of the, of the jigsaw puzzle together. So we have been studying in Ephesians, and today we're looking at this last piece of the puzzle, the gift of the kingdom to the Son of Man. And we have been looking at these Old Testament passages in order to understand this particular section of Ephesians 4. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And now we have this Old Testament quote. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then there's this explanation of that. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so what we have been looking at here is to understand the significance of this quotation, which comes from Psalm 68, 18. But it is more than just that simple quote that comes out of Psalm 68, 18. We have to understand what's happening in that context. And then what we realize is that there are other passages that are really in the background. They're not referenced here. They're not stated here, but they're stated elsewhere but it helps us to understand just what it is exactly that is so significant about Christ's ascension because in the rest of this chapter, he's going to talk about how these gifts that Christ gave to us and their gifts to the church. So it brings into focus and should bring to our minds the question, what is, what's the role of the ascension to the church? Why is this so different? And that's what we've been focusing on probably for the last six or seven uh, lessons. So what I've done is I put this together in terms of five messianic psalms. We looked at Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen, which is a victory procession psalm. It is a declaration of praise to God as the uh, Ark of the Covenant was taken by David uh, up to the Temple Mount, where it will eventually reside in the temple, but at this time not the tabernacle's up there, and that's it. I think this probably occurred chronologically close to the end of David's life as opposed to earlier. One of the reasons I say that, and there's some problems with that, is that it appears that there's not that, when we studied Second Samuel, you'll remember this, there's this judgment that occurs on Israel at the end of Second Samuel, where because of David's disobedience, there's a plague. And at the end of the plague, David goes up onto the mount and he offers a sacrifice, but we learn that this is the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And then he purchases that to be the future site of the temple. So earlier on, we're not sure quite how that works out, but one possibility is that that this that event occurs prior to David taking the Ark of the Covenant up there uh, for a permanent uh, resting place and permanent site. So anyway, we have Psalm 68, 18, and then we looked at Psalm 110, Psalm 2 we finished up with last time, and then today we're going to look at Psalm 7, I mean Daniel 7, in relation to Psalm 8. And then we'll come back later, Just I just want to mention Psalm 89 and Psalm 132, because they talk about the Davidic covenant. So we'll, we'll touch on that just very, very briefly. The second thing that comes to bear in terms of this study is understanding these terms, son of man, which we'll focus on a little more today, and son of God. Son of God, son of man are terms that relate to a description of a person. So in Hebrew, you have these idioms that are used. If somebody's a murderer, they would be called the son of a murderer because they have the characteristics of a murderer. Or if they're not too bright, they're a son of a fool because they are foolish, so they have the characteristics of a fool. Or if they are somebody who just causes a lot of trouble, they are a son of Belial, a son of destruction. 
So they, their lives characterize that which brings chaos and destruction. So if someone is called the son of God, what's that emphasizing? That they exhibit the characteristics of God. They are, they are deity. If someone is called the son of man, then he exhibits the characteristics of humanity. And this term son of man was the, uh, the Lord's favorite title to use to refer to himself, emphasizing that he is true humanity. And of course, he's called the son of God because he is undiminished deity. He's the son of David because he's literally a descendant of David and will exhibit the characteristics of David because David was the king of Israel and he is the future king of Israel. And that is what's displayed in his titles, king of kings and Lord of Lords. And as I pointed out last time, it is the Davidic covenant that's the foundation for all of these things in the Messianic Psalms and in the titles. And also, it brings into focus the Melchizedekian priesthood, which I'll talk about in just a minute. So we looked at Psalm 68, 18, and 19, which is the direct quote, but it's in a different setting. It is in the setting of this victory procession, which is what is referred to in verse 24, this victory procession where finally the Ark of the Covenant reaches its goal. It's been since it was constructed at the foot of Mount Sinai in approximately 1445 B.C., 46 to 45 during that year after the uh, Exodus. And then it travels with the tabernacle through the next 40 years, the wandering in the desert. Finally, it leads the people into the land as they cross the River Jordan. And then it is at the forefront of the battles as they defeat the Canaanites and conquer the land. But it doesn't get to a final resting place until 2 Samuel uh, six, and that is when the ark is taken in, uh, taken up to the, the the temple mount. And so David writes this psalm about that victory procession, and he understands that this is a picture or a type of what will take place in the future in reference to the ascension of the Messiah to heaven, uh, taking his place at the right hand of of the Father. And so it initially is directed to God who has given them victory, God the Father specifically. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. And the captivity, I believe, are the Israelites that were freed from their slavery in Egypt and are given freedom, but their freedom is a transfer of ownership from Egypt to God. They are now to be the servants of Yahweh. And then you have received gifts among men as people bring their thanksgiving offerings and their praise offerings to the uh, tabernacle, even including the rebellious. God's grace extends to even those who were rebellious among, among Israel. And so this is the point of 68.8, uh, quoting from that, that psalm. So the events are that Christ ascends, Psalm 68.18 with Ephesians 4.7-8. Then at the end of the ascension, it has a direction, it has a goal. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. 
on his father's throne, Revelation 3.21 and Psalm 110.1. He asks for the kingdom in Psalm 2.8 and is granted that kingdom, and this is where we are today in Daniel 7.14. And then he will return to the earth and defeat the kings of the earth, Psalm 2.9 and Revelation 19.19-21. And then he will establish his rule, which is the focus of Revelation chapter 20. So we look at these verses. Now, every time I go through this, I always say things, and I always see things when I'm studying that I haven't said or seen before. So don't go to sleep because, oh, I've heard this review so many times. There's always new stuff in the review. Uh, Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, passive verb, he's received by a cloud, out of, and taken out of their sight. The cloud can represent angels, but I think here it represents God and his acceptance into heaven. Hebrews 4.14 says this, and there's a lot in Hebrews about the ascension. Hebrews 4.14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Notice it's starting to connect his high priestly ministry, which is church age, It's connecting that to the ascension. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He was the first astronaut. He's the first one who just took off and went out of the atmosphere and and went through the uh, heavens of the uh, universe and goes to the throne of God. And so notice here, Jesus, the Son of God, emphasizing his deity, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 7.26 also makes this connection. Such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. He's elevated above all things, we learn from several other verses, like Ephesians 1.20 and 21. Uh, which he worked, this is referring to God, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. So it skips the uh, that period of the resurrection and his appearance to the disciples, goes to the beginning and the end, uh, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Many times this is this this is referred to in the New Testament that of his session, which means to be seated. And that in 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, these are terms for different ranks among the angels, whether elect angels or whether the fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion. So he is elevated above the angels in authority. Now, Jesus was always, um, the second person of the Trinity, rather, the Son of God, was always in authority over the angels. So this is specifying the fact that this is the Son of Man. This is Jesus in his humanity is now elevated above the angels. There is a man sitting at the right hand of the Father. There is the God-man sitting there. And he is elevated, and notice he's, this is for not only in this age, but also in the age to come and on into eternity. Hebrews 10.12, another reference to this, but this man, notice emphasizing his humanity again, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, 
sat down at the right hand of God, the session. From that time, that is from his uh, sitting at the Father's right hand, from that time until his enemies are made his footstool. Because that's exactly what God said to the Messiah, Psalm 110.1, a messianic prophecy, the Lord Yahweh, which would be God the Father, said to my Lord, which as we've studied is a reference to another divine person. So this is the second person of the Trinity. The God the Father says, when Jesus arrives in heaven in the, at, at the end point of the ascension, the Father says, sit at my right hand. Sitting is a passive position. He is not to engage those enemies yet. He is to wait until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, what is he doing during this time? Well, this is the focal point of Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn, sworn, this is Yahweh, and he will not relent. Who's he speaking to? The Lord at his right hand, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So during this present session, Jesus Christ is our high priest. As our high priest, he is our advocate. This is 1 John 2, 1 and 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. He is interceding for us. He is praying for us. He is our uh, our defense attorney, as it was, as it were, when Satan uh, brings a charge against us. And so he is primarily functioning in that role as our high priest right now. Notice he's not king right now. The term king is not used in reference to Jesus until, and we'll see this when we close, until he returns at the second coming. There's so much confusion about this because there's been so much confusion with the um, apostasy, maybe a strong word, but if you, those of you who've been listening in and we've gone through church history, you go back into the early 1700s, there's a shift from the premillennialism of the Puritans that came to America. They believed Jesus would return prior to or before he establishes his kingdom. So it's premillennialism. They shifted to a postmillennialism. Jonathan Edwards, considered one of the greatest uh, preachers and philosopher theologians that have been produced in American history, uh, was a postmillennial. His his theological descendants were postmillennial, and postmillennial is is the idea that the in its best form, the Holy Spirit gradually will bring in the kingdom, and then Jesus returns once the kingdom or this utopia is established. But that idea became more and more secularized through the 1700s until by the time you get into the early to mid-1800s, postmillennialism is something that America is going to produce. We are God's people on this earth, and we're going to bring in the kingdom. Then it really gets secularized, and you forget God and Jesus. We're just going to bring in a utopia, and that's where we are today. 
So uh, what happens, though, is this idea gets embedded in American Christianity that, that we're in some form of the kingdom now. And so to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. And so we talk about King Jesus and we, all of this. And, and in Scripture, you look at we, like, for him. We worship the king. Who's that talking about? That's not talking about Jesus. You've got to look at the Psalms. When they talk about the king, they're talking about God the Father as the king. He is the theocratic ruler over the theocracy of Israel. It's not talking about a millennial kingdom. It's, it's not talking about Jesus as the Davidic king who will come. It's talking about God who rules and reigns over his creation. So Jesus is the royal high priest right now awaiting being given a kingdom. You can't have a king, king, king without a kingdom. So that's what's coming up. And what has to happen before Jesus gets that kingdom is he's going to have to defeat his enemies. That's what Psalm 110, 2, and 3 talk about. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. I want you to pay attention to that phrase, the rod of your strength. This is talking about the use of a weapon, a rod, to bring submission to his enemies. So Psalm 110, 2, and 3 are talking about what will happen. What what does he say at the end of verse 1? Until I make your enemies your footstool. At that point, that's when the Lord, Yahweh, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, uh, from the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you. Okay, so all of that we've covered before. So what's happening in this intervening period? Number one, we are seated with Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, that we have been uh, made alive together in him. We have been raised together, and we have been seated together with him in the heavenlies. That's our legal position. We are in Christ at the Father's right hand. What's our position? Seated. Not going out and trying to bring in the kingdom not trying to provoke a utopia or any of those things. We are seated. It's a position also of waiting until what? Until God says, I will make your enemies your footstool. We don't come back with Christ to defeat the enemies until the end of the tribulation period. So we're waiting, like Jesus, for the giving of the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom. We're not trying to bring in the kingdom There's no kingdom, and we shouldn't really talk about Jesus as king. Second, like him, our role is related to our royal priesthood. His role right now is primarily as high priest. Our role is related to our priestly role, carrying out the Great Commission, evangelism, uh, discipling, training, teaching, praying, and all of the other one another ministries in the church. We went then from Psalm 110 to Psalm 2. The language is very similar. Psalm 2 tells us about this this conspiracy of a revolt among the kings, the leaders, the rulers of the earth, and that they seek to overturn the authority of God and his anointed one. That's his Messiah. And so that's at the point, finally, God is going to give uh, permission, finally, to the Son to come and deal with his enemies. 
So verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Mashiach, against his anointed, saying. So this is the outline we went through, where in the first three verses, the kings of the earth plot rebellion against the Lord and his Messiah. The next give the response of God to their plan. What's he going to do? He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. He ridicules them. He mocks them. And then uh, the next four verses, seven or three verses, seven through nine, recount the king's claims to the throne in spite of the op- opposition, and then it's applied to the Messiah when he returns. So we read at the beginning, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us, this is what the kings of the earth, the Gentile powers, at that time, if there's a United States, that includes the president of the United States, the king or queen of England, and the dictators of China and Russia, and all the world leaders are going to be working together in order to defeat God and his anointed. There will be Genuine globalism and internationalism, that's why globalism and internationalism are evil. They are the result of of Satan's desire to unite the human race against God. And this is their mantra. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They are completely against the authority of God. Now, the idea of the Messiah really comes, it doesn't begin with the Davidic covenant, but it is, uh, it, it, it is established by this covenant following the Abrahamic covenant as well. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, in Psalm 89, which is a prayer on the basis of the Davidic covenant, and it's also given in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14, which is parallel to first Sam, or 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. God promises to the descendants of David an eternal house, a dynasty that will go on forever. He also promises an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will go on forever, and an eternal throne, a throne that will go on for, forever. Uh, for there to be an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne, the one who is the king must be eternal. And to be eternal, you have to be what? Divine. So it, all these passages indicate this is someone who is both human and divine. We get to Psalm 2-7, that speaker shifts to the Messiah, the anointed one in the passage. I will declare the decree. So he's making a declaration of the decree that God the Father made in eternity past. The Lord, that is God the Father, said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is emphasizing that, that this is in this, this covenant between the Father and the Son from eternity past. And what is it, what's included in this? Psalm 2.8, the Father says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. So we're waiting for the Father to, to say to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. In the meantime, the Son is sitting. We're sitting in him, identified with him. 
waiting for the Father to make his enemies his footstool, to be ready to subordinate uh, the human race, the rulers of, of mankind, to the Lord. I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And what is he supposed to do? We have that imagery of the rod again. Pay attention to this. You shall break them with a rod of iron. So he's going to come back, and the nations of the earth are in full rebellion against him, and he is going to forcibly uh, suppress their rebellion and cause them to submit to him. Every knee will bow. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord shall, and that reminds us of what I read a minute ago in Psalm 110, verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. And you have this imagery all the way through that it is God who is going to cause this shattering, this breaking, this dashing, Psalm 2, 9, Job 34, 24, it is God who breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry, Jeremiah 51, 20, you are my battle axe and weapons of war, for with you I will break the nations in pieces. And what this tells us is these two verbs indicate divine action. So therefore, when he says to the Messiah, you will destroy your enemies with this rod, he is indicating that the Messiah is fully divine because only God uh, smashes with those verbs. So that brings us to our new fresh ground here in Daniel chapter 7. We read this this morning in our scripture reading to get more of the context, but I'm going to make a couple of comments about this as we go through this so that we understand uh, when this is happening and and what's going on here. Now back in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in that dream, he saw this image. That image represented the kingdom of man, actually the kingdoms of man, but they're just different manifestations of man's kingdom in contrast to God's kingdom. And when we look at the flow of Scripture, after Noah and the boys got off the ark, and they begin to spread out a little bit, not enough. We have the uh, records of their descendants in Genesis chapter 10, but there's one group in Genesis 11 that doesn't scatter, and they're really the source of false religion and idolatry there in rebellion against God, and they conspire together because everybody speaks the same language, and they are going to be build a tower up to God. That's the Tower of Babel. So God, it's, there's so much humor in that chapter. Uh, God, God, in his triune personality, says, Hey guys, let's go down and see what kind of crazy thing our humans are doing today. Just, just trying to enliven it up a little bit. So they go down and they see this rebellion taking place, and this is a is a world united against God. It is globalism at its beginning. It's internationalism. It's the original form of the League of Nations and then the United Nations and whatever it is we're trying to put together today. 
And so that's what we're seeing in, in Genesis chapter 11. And what does God do? God is going to bring judgment on them by scattering the languages. Everybody suddenly starts speaking different languages, and they've got to find somebody they can understand. And so through the languages, he's going to create different people groups, and they're going to be forced to scatter over the face of the earth. Ever since then, Satan has been trying to get back to that point. Never forget that. He has been trying to unite through these various empires, which I'm calling the kingdom of man. He's been trying to unite the human race against God ever since that. And so once Israel's taken out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 586, and you have these Jews all taken captive to to, uh, Babylon, uh, what's the original name for Babylon? Babel. Babel is always a picture in Scripture. It's a literal place, but it also is a representative of the kingdom of man. Jerusalem is the city of God. There's always that conflict there between Jerusalem and and Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar has these visions, these dreams, these nightmares every night, leaves him restless, can't find any of his magicians or soothsayers to tell him what, what they were, and he's pretty smart. He knows that if he tells them the vision, that they'll make up something that sounds good and try to fake him out. So he says, you have to tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. Well, that pretty much upset all those, uh, all of his cabinet of soothsayers, and uh, he's on the verge of killing all of them because no one can tell him anything, so he figures they're all worthless. And when Daniel hears about it, Daniel prays to God, and God gives him the meaning of the the dream. And in that dream, there are going to be four major sections of this uh, statue that represent different kingdoms. And it's the flow of the kingdom of man during the times of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles began with the defeat of the conquest of Israel in 586, and the first kingdom in this time of the Gentiles is the uh, represented by the head of gold, and that's Babylon. Because, because when D- uh, Daniel interprets this, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of, go- head of gold. And then you have the upper torso is silver, and that is going to represent, um, represent the uh, Medes and the Persians. And then you have the... Uh, bronze, uh, the the abdomen, a uh, lower torso, and that represents uh, Greece. And then you have the uh, legs of iron, and that represents the Roman Empire, which divides into eastern and western branches of the Roman Empire. And then you have the feet, which are a mixture of iron and clay. Iron tells you that some elements are from the old Roman Empire, some elements are clay. They're not as strong as the iron, but they're introduced. And so it's a, that future kingdom because the other kings and kingdoms have all come. So this statue is made out of metal, made out of precious metal, which pictures from the human viewpoint the value of these empires. We think they're great. But then in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to get a look at this from God's viewpoint. And they're represented as beasts. And that is God's opinion of human empires. And that includes the United States. 
I know we're patriotic, we love our country and everything, but God sees the ultimate intent that's going on beneath the surface, and we're really seeing the bestial aspect coming out in in recent years. But so in Daniel 7, Daniel sees the, uh, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, excuse me, it's Belshazzar, um, uh, is going to, it's the first year of Belshazzar, Daniel has this dream, and in Daniel's dream, it's going to represent the same four kingdoms, but as four beasts. And so he writes down what he sees, and he, at verse 2 he says that the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So he sees the four winds of heaven represent God's providential direction of, of history. And the great sea just represents the mass of humanity on the earth. And he says, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first is like a lion and has eagle's wings. Well, that's going to be Babylon. And then the second is going to be uh, like a bear raised up on one side, and that represents the Media Persian Empire. The third is going to be this leopard that has uh, four wings on its back. The Greek Empire will divide into four after the death of Alexander the Great. And then after this, he says in verse 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. That's the Roman Empire. Dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong, huge iron teeth. Notice the iron. goes back to the legs of iron in in the statue. Iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. But it's different from all the others. Now, how many toes are on that statue? Ten toes represent, which will represent the ten nations of the final uh, confederacy during the time of the tribulation. And that's pictured by ten horns on this fearsome beast uh, mentioned at the end of verse 7. So Daniel's thinking about these horns. I was considering the horns. And then along comes an eleventh horn, another horn, a little one. A little one doesn't look real impressive at first, but he comes up and uh, before whom three of the first horns are plucked out by the roots. So this apparently inconsequential power will come along and conquer three of the others. And then uh, he describes this horn, eyes like the eyes of a man, a man, a mouth speaking pompous words, so he's filled with arrogance. That's his panorama of human history. So we come to verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, and it's a scene shift. It's now focusing on what's happening in heaven. Just like when you watch a movie or you watch a television show or you go to the uh, theater and you see uh, it goes from one act to another and you see scene shifts. Well, it's the same thing here. So we've seen the panorama on the earth. And then uh, Daniel says, I watched until thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. So the scene shifts to heaven and there is a gathering of these thrones. Doesn't identify what the thrones are. They're put in place and then the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, that is not the Lord Jesus Christ. The Ancient of Days was seated. 
as garment, it's white as snow. Some people make the mistake of identifying the Ancient of Days as Jesus because he's dressed similarly to the, to the resurrected Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. But you've got to pay attention. The Ancient of Days is seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Where else do we see that description of the throne of God? We see it in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, I believe. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. So the Ancient of Days is God the Father. And then in verse 10 we read, A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Revelation calls it myriads upon myriads of angels. Just... Tens of thousands, you can't count them all, surround the throne and are serving the, the Lord, the Lord God of heaven. Uh, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Interesting language here. So it is a t- picture of judgment. And so in verse 11, Daniel says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Now that tells us that this scene has to take place after the pompous one shows up on the scene. Uh, I watched until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So he's compressing a lot here. Uh, You have the court up here. You have on the earth the appearance of the, uh, comes along the appearance of the Antichrist, which fits the pattern in Revelation. And then Daniel says in, I left 12 out, um, says, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. What that means is when you go back and you go through the Babylon, Persia, Media Persia Empire, and the Greeks, they all came on the scene and left. That's what it means. They had their dominion taken away. But their lives were prolonged. See, whatever is critical and part of each of those empires continued after the empire. What they brought into human history, the ideas, the philosophy, the religions, it continues. And so it is extended they're, they're, they're extended in that sense. And then Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Now, where have we heard that term before? Okay? We saw that term in these other passages that we looked at, and uh, in, uh, the, uh, in, in Psalm 110, and then connecting that to Uh, Psalm 2 as the Messiah. So one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. So the he refers to the Son of Man. That's why you can't have the Ancient of Days being Jesus Christ. Okay? Because this is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven, angels escorting him. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near, that is, the Son of Man, near before him, the Ancient of Days. Now, a key passage for understanding Son of Man is to go to Psalm 8, 4, and 5. 
which asks the question of God, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Now, if you look at your English translations, they'll have son of man as lowercase because the trend in scholarship is to not have so many messianic prophecies. But this is a messianic prophecy, and I'm going to show you why in just a minute. Uh, what is the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, see, Jesus talks about this in John 3.13. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. So he's identifying himself as the son of man and his descent to the earth. We'll talk more about this in the next week. In a book published two years ago, the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecies, which is available in Lagos, uh, Josh Matthews writes the article on Psalm 8, and he says in his introductory paragraph, it marvels, that is the psalm, marvels at the magnificent creator who would pay attention to the humans he created. New Testament writers attach Christological significance to the psalm in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, Ephesians 1, 22, and Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. In other words, they make, the New Testament writers make it clear that Psalm 8 is talking about Jesus. Identifying the Son of Man in Psalm 8, 4 as a prophetic reference to Christ the writers see a meaning within the psalm that goes beyond praise for the special role of humanity. It's praise for the future role of the Son of Man. This is cited in Hebrews 2, 5 through 8. For he, that is uh, God, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, and so he quotes from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? And again, in your Bibles, it's not going to capitalize son of man, but it should. The son of man that you take care of him, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. When did that happen? That happened at the ascension. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. I'll come back in a minute. Zane Hodges wrote this in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Zane Hodges was my first-year Greek professor. He was a professor at Dallas Seminary for 20 or 30 years, very well-known uh, Greek scholar, and he wrote the commentary on Hebrews in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And he said, a portion of Psalm 8 was now quoted. While the psalm as a whole is often read as a general statement about the role of man in God's creation, it is clear in the light of Hebrews 2.5 and the application that follows in verses 8b to 9 that the author of Hebrews read it primarily as messianic and eschatological. It deals with the future. In doing so, he stood well within the New Testament perspective on the Old Testament, a perspective directly traceable to Jesus himself. So notice at the end of verse 8, but the writer of Hebrews says, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. 
See, he's elevated positionally over the angels, but he still has these creatures on the earth that are going to conspire together to rebel against him, so we don't see all things put under him yet. Again, we can't come up with this this horrible distortion that we're already in the kingdom but not yet fully here. You, you, you just can't have that kind of a dialectic in your interpretation of Scripture. So back to Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then, it's at that time, this is when, after the little horn has come on the scene. It's not after the resurrection. It's not after the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost. It is after the uh, little horn, the Antichrist, is on the scene. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." And then in verse 26 and 27, it says, But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion, that's taking the dominion away from the little horn, to consume and destroy it forever. So the dominion of the little horn clearly is taken away. Then, that means afterwards, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all his dominion shall serve and obey him. So this is the order of events that we see. There's the ascension of Christ, Psalm 68:18 and Ephesians 4, 7 to 8. Then second, we see that he is seated at the right hand of God on his Father's throne, Revelation 3, 21 and Psalm 110, 1. Third, he asked for the kingdom, Psalm 2, 8, which hasn't happened yet. It happens after there's this conspiracy of the, of the, on the earth for internationalism. Fifth, the Messiah returns to the earth and then defeats the kings of the earth, Psalm 2, 9, Revelation 19, 19 to 21. And then the Messiah will establish his rule. That's Revelation 20. Now, this scene that we just saw described in, in, um, in Daniel 7, where the, uh, the, the, the thrones are set up and then the Ancient of Days takes his seat in the throne room. This is what we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 after the rapture, and it's probably right after the rapture, this is the scene in heaven. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. Those would be uh, the cherubs. Four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. They're like the cherubs. There's some distinctions. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. They're before the throne of God. So 5-1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside on the ba- and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So God the Father sitting on the throne, in his right hand he o- holds this scroll. The scroll is written inside, it's rolled up, and you can see there's writing on the outside. 
but it's sealed with seven seals. This is how we, the whole book is structured because as those seals are opened, they, each one brings a different judgment. And so at that time, John, who's observing this, said, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who's worthy? Who's worthy to take this? This is the title deed to the earth. Who's worthy to take the title deed to the earth and to take, uh, take these seals and to open these seals and to bring the judgment on the earth? And John says... <clears throat> John breaks out weeping. He's just bawling because none can be found. And one of the elders says to him, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And John says, I look and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then in 6.1 he says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. That's the first seal. The point I'm making is the scene of Revelation 4 and 5 is the same scene of those thrones being set up, the Ancient of Days taking his seat, and then the Son of Man coming and asking for the kingdom. And that's what he's doing here. When the scroll is given to him to uh, go establish your kingdom, he has to bring judgment on the earth to purify the earth before he can establish his kingdom. Now, what's the scene? The scene is this throne room where you have all these thrones set up and the Ancient of Days... And that starts, and then chapter 6, 7, 8, all the way down to 19, you go through the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, and it comes to its conclusion in Revelation 19. Look at what, how Revelation 19, 1 starts. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Have you heard that before? That's what's being sung back in Revelation 4 and 5. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot. That's the revived Roman Empire, the kingdom of Satan, uh, who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And they again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Uh, Babylon has been destroyed by this time in the first stage of the campaign of Armageddon. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. We just saw them. Same group, the 24 elders and four living creatures before the throne. The Lamb takes the scroll, brings about all of the judgments. At the end, they're still before the throne, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I saw heaven opened. Wait a minute, I went past that too fast. Let me back that up. Okay. I probably messed this up. I'm not going to go back again. I'll just, I got to, as I do, I have to back it up for it to happen. So I see that. Okay. 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. Who's on the white horse? It's the Son of Man. He's called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and rages war. What's he doing? He is taking, bringing destruction on the kings of the earth, fulfilling Psalm 2. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Why? Because he has already come out of Basra with a robe dipped in blood, fulfilling that prophecy, defeating the armies of the Antichrist. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That would be us. The resurrection, raptured, rewarded church age believers. Now out of his mouth goes a short sword, that which um, that that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Have you heard that phrase before? Goes back to Psalm two and Psalm one hundred and ten. He himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the first time you see Jesus called the King. Now, he's referred to that early in Matthew when he's presenting the kingdom. But when it's rejected, he's not called King again until now. And this is when he establishes his kingdom. So what, what have we done in putting all this together? It's to show that what's happening right now is something that it was not revealed in the Old Testament, that God has a new people. They are called a mystery in the second part of, um, or the first uh, part, the first half of Ephesians 3. We spent a lot of time there. there. It was never revealed to anybody in the Old Testament. And God is making a new people for himself, and he is building a temple. This is the end of, Revela- of, of Ephesians chapter 2. He is, this is a corporate entity of the church that the Holy Spirit indwells and is building is the church. And what is important is that how is that building built? That's what Ephesians 4, 7 and following is talking about, is the gifts, gifted leaders that, God, that Christ gives to the church in order to edify them and build them up and to train them because the training we go through today is preparing us to rule and reign with Christ when we return with him at the second coming and he establishes the kingdom. And so all of this tells us that our role now is not a militant role. It is a role to uh, evangelize, to teach, to train, to equip, to mature believers for that future role when we uh, come back with him at the end of the tribulation period. So we'll get into that and develop it more when we go further in our text in Ephesians 4 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together, to focus upon your word, to be reminded that you have a plan and a purpose, and everything that is going on in in human history is focused on that end game of establishing uh, your kingdom on the earth, taking rulership back from Satan once he stole it in the Garden of Eden, 
And we have a, a fantastic role to play in the future. All of this fits together. And Father, we're thankful that we have your word that opens our eyes to our future destiny. Father, we pray too for those who may be here, those who are listening, those who may listen at a later time to understand how to be a part of that on the winning side, that salvation is simple. It has many complexities to it, for there were many complexities to the problems of sin, and the cross solved them all. But the simple form is that we just believe Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we have everlasting life. And that we believe in doing that, we recognize he is uh, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the fulfillment of those prophecies and promises of the Old Testament for a, uh, a Messiah who would save his people from their sin. And, Father, we trust in him, and that is the gospel, that he, the good news that we have hope. We look forward to a bright and glorious future for eternity, all because of your magnificent grace. So, Father, we pray that anyone listening who's uh, not sure of their eternal destiny or uncertain about their salvation, that they would trust you, trust Christ as their Savior. Scripture is very clear. You just have to trust in him. You don't have to pray a prayer, raise your hand, walk an aisle, any of these other artificial things that people come up with. You don't invite Jesus into your life. It just says simply believe 95 times in the Gospel of John. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So, Father, we ask now that you would challenge each of us with what we've learned and understanding our future role in destiny much more clearly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.